Our Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful, a loving, a powerful God. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that even when we can't see you, that we have the assurance that you are here and that you are active in our midst, Lord. And this is good news for us because we live in a world with many troubling things that are going on. Jesus, this didn't surprise you, though. You said, um, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So, Lord, we're thankful for these truths that you've overcome the world, that you've gained the victory over sin and evil and death, yet we recognize that we still live in this world that's facing so many challenges. Lord, we look around and it's just, it's heartbreaking, it's concerning to say the least as we see what's going on globally, as we look even in our own backyards at various things, even in our own lives, Lord, the, the challenges and difficulties that we can face on a daily basis. But Lord, in the midst of all these things, again, we are thankful that you are a faithful and a powerful God. And I pray that in our time together this morning, as we open the scripture, the thing, words that were inspired several thousand years ago, Lord, we know that your word is living and active, and we pray that your spirit will speak to us through your word, that we may apply it to our lives, and that we may grow in trusting you more and being faithful to you, wholeheartedly faithful in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in our lives, there are certain combinations of things that are great. I think, for instance, of two of my favorite combinations. One of them is chocolate and peanut butter. And another combination I really like is strawberries and bananas. I think, you know, any one of those things is pretty good by itself, but you put it in the combination just right, it's excellent. I think of other qualities that people can have in their lives that also form great combinations. I think, for instance, if you have someone who has a selflessly generous heart and you mix that with financial means, that yields something that's really good and a huge blessing for people around them. I think, for instance, again, if you have someone who has a lot of energy and a lot of availability and they have a servant's heart, God can work through that to create something great. It's a great combination to have those qualities together. And so you have certain combinations of things that are great and are powerful and are really beneficial and glorifying to God, but you have other combinations of things that are not so good. I think about back when I was in college, some friends and I rented a house during our final year. And this house, um, you could call it a fixer-upper, I guess. It needed a whole lot of work. Your typical college house, though. But one of the things that happened was in the basement, there was some mold on some of the walls, especially in the workroom and the large storage room. And early on, one of my roommates decided to take on this task of addressing that mold. So what he did is he took bleach and ammonia mixed them together because he thought, you know what, these each would work really well on their own, but how much better would they work if you put them together? So they, he mixed them together in a small workroom. Didn't take him too long to figure out that it's not a good combination. If you don't know, if you mix bleach and ammonia together, it's toxic. You get chlorine gas, which is what was used for chemical warfare during World War II. And my friend was in a small workroom working with this stuff. Now, thankfully, a few hours of fresh air and some ibuprofen helped him overcome that. He, he was all right after that. But it shows that certain combinations of things are, are dangerous, to say the least, even potentially deadly. And when you look down through world history, 
you see many combinations that are good, but you also see some combinations that are very dangerous. And one of the most dangerous combinations when you look down through world history is when you combine pride, prejudice, and power. That's what we're going to be looking at today. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. Let me give you an overview of where we've come so far in the course of this series. And I'm going to do it by showing you a series of contemporary images that describe the initial stages of the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther was written about events that took place about 2,500 years ago in the Persian Empire. And the book of Esther begins by showing this massive war council that lasts for six months, led by King Xerxes. He's trying to rally the rulers of the empire around his desire to invade Greece. And at the end of this war council, there is this extravagant banquet at which um, they are all celebrating. The king and his men are all drunk. And the king gets this great idea, so he thinks, that the queen should come in and parade around and show off her beauty. Now, the queen, on the other hand, doesn't really like this idea very much. And so she says, no, I am not coming. And so the king, in his anger, said, okay, you are no longer the queen. He banished her from his presence. And you fast forward a little while, and the king then began a process of finding a new queen. The process looked much like the modern TV show, The Bachelor where beautiful young women were gathered from all over the empire. They were brought to the king, and after some preparation, they each got one night with the king in order to try to impress the king so much that he would choose her as the new queen. At the end of this process, he became particularly impressed with a young woman named Esther, and he named her the queen. Now, Esther was Jewish, but he didn't know that. At the time. And that is where we're going to pick up today. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read. We're going to be reading this passage in three different sections, but I'm going to start off Esther chapter 2, picking up in verse 19. It says, When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about this plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So we see here an account of how Mordecai has a responsibility here of of really saving the king. And Mordecai here, if you remember from last week, if you were here, Mordecai is a cousin of Esther, although after Esther's parents die... Mordecai, who evidently is a little bit older, adopts Esther as his own daughter. And Mordecai, it says here, is essentially a government official. That's what it means two different times when when he says, or when it says that he was sitting at the king's gate. Now let me clarify how the the city of Susa was set up. Um, There was a city of Susa 
which is the capital city of the Persian Empire. But within there, there's a certain section of the city called the Citadel of Susa. And this was where the king and his officials lived. This is where the official business of the Persian Empire took place. And there was an entrance into that citadel that was called the King's Gate. And the King's Gate was not merely like a door on hinges. It wasn't like a drawbridge or something. It was instead a large building in which a number of officials for the government served. Mordecai, evidently, was one of those servants there of the, of the king because he, it says, was sitting at the king gate, king's gate. That's the way of saying that he served there as a government official. And this, this fact that he was a government official is further backed up back in chapter 2, verse 5, when it, it says that Mordecai lived in the citadel of Susa. He didn't just live in the city of Susa. He lived in that citadel where the king and his officials lived. On top of that, back in chapter 2, verse 11, it says that when Esther was in the harem preparing to meet with King Xerxes for the first time at night, it says, verse 11, every day Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. An ordinary citizen wouldn't have been able to do this. But because Mordecai was a government official, he had a right to be there in the citadel and to check on Esther in this manner. And so we see that Mordecai was a government official. He's sitting at the king's gate doing his official role. And while he's there, he overhears a plot to assassinate the king. Now we have to understand that back in that culture, assassinations were quite common. They just were. Even King Xerxes, 13 years after this is taking place, would be assassinated in his own bedroom by some of his top officials. Assassinations were very common. Mordecai here hears of this assassination plot, and out of his faithfulness to the king, he reveals the plot. He tells Esther. Esther then tells the king, and then, then the two people who are plotting to kill him are, are taken care of. And so Mordecai essentially here saves the king. Now I want to move on to the next part of this passage, and you'll see how that's relevant. Let's pick up chapter 3, verse 1. It says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So we talked earlier about deadly combinations. We see here a combination forming of pride and prejudice. And we see pride and prejudice beginning to boil over. Now, if you lived, say, 2,000 years ago and you were listening to the book of Esther being read, after the account that I just talked about, about Mordecai uh, saving the king... You'd expect that the very next step in chapter 3 would be the king honoring Mordecai. Because back in that culture, kings were very diligent to make sure that they generously rewarded anyone who showed faithfulness 
their loyalty to the king. There is, in fact, a list that these Persian kings kept. The list was called the king's benefactors, where anyone who helped the king out in some way by doing him a favor, they were kept on that list to make sure that they were recognized and richly rewarded. And so in that culture, they would naturally expect, okay, Mordecai did something to save the king, and so therefore, you, we will next see that Mordecai is honored in some manner or another. Instead, chapter 3, verse 1, it talks about this man, Haman, who is honored. And we have to think, you know what? Sometimes life just isn't fair. And this is a picture of that. Mordecai deserves the honor. Instead, Haman is honored. It's kind of like, okay, you're at work, and you, you know that there is a position available that you really, really want. You think, okay, I've worked hard. I mean, I'm, I'm really putting in more hours and more work than anyone else here. I've had a lot of big ideas. They've really helped the company advance. Um, I, I've been faithful to my boss. I, I've helped him out a ton or her out a ton. And so you think, you know what? I'm deserving of this promotion to this position they really want in the company. And then the announcement comes out. It's not you who gets the promotion. It's someone else. And you look at them and you're like, okay, maybe they've done something, but I've done so much more. I deserve it more. You think, it's not fair. This happens so much in our lives where we think we deserve something, but we don't get it. We think we deserve some honor. We think we deserve um, some, something going our way. But it doesn't work out the way that we want it to. We think, you know what, life is so unfair. And in many ways, in this broken world, life many times is not fair. And that's essentially what Mordecai is experiencing here. Mordecai should be the one who is exalted and honored. Instead, Mordecai is forgotten. And Haman is the one who is exalted. And the king even uh, passes a command that anyone who is in Haman's presence, as he walks by, should bow down out of respect to Haman. And everyone goes by that, except for one person, and that is Mordecai. It says, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So we may wonder, okay, why didn't Mordecai bow down? Why didn't Mordecai give this sort of honor in, in, in respect to the king's command to Haman? Well, we've talked throughout the series about how the book of Esther is kind of challenging to interpret, in part because we are not shown many of the motives of the characters. We don't know exactly why Esther and Mordecai and the others are doing what they're doing typically, but there are some clues here about why Mordecai is not bowing down. Now, one thing we see at the end of verse 4 as he is explaining to these officials, I mean, the guys he works with there in the king's gate, why he won't bow down, it's clear that one of the reasons is that he was a Jew. He was a Jew. So that is part of the motivation for not bowing down. Now, why does being a Jew prevent him from bowing down? I think the key there is looking at who Haman was. It says, after these events, verse 1, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, as I just read that, you probably, maybe you even zoned out a little bit. Because you're like, I don't know who Hamadatha is. I don't know what an Agagite is. And so our temptation is just to gloss right over that thing. Well, that doesn't really matter very much. It actually, in this case, matters a ton. Now, you may still be wondering, okay, how does it matter? What in the world is an Agagite? Well, let me um, explain what that is. And this is important because in Hebrew narrative, when, when Hebrews, uh, people from a Jewish background or really from anywhere in, in that ancient Near Eastern culture, 
when they are writing accounts of history like this, the way that a character is initially introduced, the characteristics ascribed to them are key to understanding their role in the story. I mean, you think about Esther back in chapter 2. How was she introduced? Well, she was introduced as a beautiful woman with a great body. You may think, okay, that's pretty superficial. It is. But the fact that she was very beautiful with a great body was central to her becoming the queen. And so it's a key to the story. How was Mordecai introduced back in chapter 2? He was introduced with his Jewish heritage. The fact that he is a Jew is key and central to the story of what's going on next and how he plays a role. Haman, as he's introduced, how's he introduced? As an Agagite. So we come back to the question, what is an Agagite? <laughs> we just finished, um, just finished Cave Quest VBS. It kind of sounds like stalactite. Um, it's not that. Agagite represents a person who comes from a certain type of uh, historical lineage. They're, they're, they have certain ancestors. And specifically, there was a King Agag who was the king of a people called the Amalekites. Now you may be thinking, okay, that does not clear it up one bit. Who were the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites were a group of people who, as Israel was coming out of Egypt years, um, centuries before, when they'd been enslaved in Egypt, and God brings them out, he parts the Red Sea, they're coming towards Mount Sinai, where they're going to experience or, or receive the Ten Commandments and the law of God, be set apart as God's special people. As they're coming up towards uh, Mount Sinai, the Amalekites, this nomadic people, they come out and they start attacking Israel. Let me read you part of the account from Exodus chapter 17, uh, picking up in verse 8. It says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to jo Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And so we see this picture of this battle between Israel and the Amalekites. Israel is weary. They've come out of Egypt. They, they've fought battles there. They've been there for a long time. They're coming out. God's leading them to be his people to the promised land. The Amalekites come and attack them. And Moses says, I'm going to go up on this hill. And so Moses, it's this amazing scene where Moses has his hands raised to God saying, God, this battle is yours. And whenever his hands are raised like that to God, the Israelites are winning. But you know what? Battles take a while. There's only so long you can hold up your hands like this. And so his hands get tired. So as his hands start to go down, the Israelites start losing. And so some of Moses' friends who were there with him start to hold up his hands for him, and the Israelites win the battle. Now listen to what God's response is after this battle is over. It says, uh, Exodus chapter 17, picking up in verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And so you see this animosity that's developing between Israel and the Amalekites. Now let's fast forward a few centuries. King Saul is at this point the first king of Israel. Samuel, a prophet, uh, for, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, picking up in verse 1. says, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them. It's, that's a great word. They waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And so this is a, uh, an attempt to fulfill what God said he would do of really wiping out the Amalekites. And so Saul's supposed to go do this. And Saul, you know, mostly does this. But listen to what happens uh, down in verse 9. It says, But Saul and his army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. So they were kind of selective. This is called selective obedience or incomplete obedience. And it's kind of tempting in our lives where we think, you know what? Okay, I know that God's saying this, but you know what? I don't like that part of what God's saying. And so we, we're selectively obedient. We, we kind of do this stuff that is comfortable for us, that's appealing to us. And then this other stuff that's a little bit harder, a little bit less comfortable or not as popular, we kind of fudge a little bit on that. Uh, we, we, we let things slide a little bit more over there. It's incomplete obedience. Incomplete obedience is a sin. Saul realizes that later on because he spared Agag, this king, and then a lot of the great livestock and stuff for his own benefit. And the thing is, anytime we sin, it does have consequences. Even though Saul, a little bit later in the chapter, acknowledges his sin before the Lord, it still has consequences. One of the consequences is being lived out right here in the book of Esther. Because Agag was allowed to live. Some of his, he, he was later put to death, but some of his descendants lived on. One of his descendants was Haman. That's why Haman is called an Agagite. He is a descendant of King Agag. And remember, Agag, the Amalekites, and the Israelites have been at war with each other for centuries upon centuries. And so when, Agag, or when Haman is elevated to this place of honor, uh, Mordecai sees that and says, No, I cannot bow down to an Agagite. I can't bow down to someone who has been my people's archenemy for years and years and years. He says, I cannot do that. I mean, let me just put it in kind of more superficial terms for us that we might understand here in, in Wisconsin. You can probably figure out where I'm going with this since I'm referencing Wisconsin. Packers fans, imagine with me that you are a die-hard Packers fan. Maybe it doesn't take much imagination. Um, but imagine that you, you are a hardcore Packers fan and the Vikings win the Super Bowl. Now, there are some Packers fans that would be like, you know what, yeah, we've won our Super Bowls. I'll be happy for them. But there might be other Packers fans, these really die-hard ones who say, no, nope, I'm a diet-in-the-wool Packers fan. I cannot stand the Vikings. We have been at war with each other, metaphorically speaking, for so long. And I cannot respect the Vikings. I cannot be happy for Vikings fans. I, I, cannot, um, I cannot tolerate the Vikings. That's essentially the attitude that Mordecai has towards Haman. Now let me take it from that superficial example to something a little bit more... Um, deeper that helps us understand a little bit more. Imagine back in the 1960s, civil rights movement, uh, you have down in the south, you have the Ku Klux Klan that is still active. Imagine if the government decreed that when the Ku Klux Klan parades through the streets, that everyone who sees them needs to bow down to them. Now imagine that you are a black person living in the south and you hear that government decree. How would you feel? 
I would say that you would not want to bow down to the Ku Klux Klan. There's so much prejudice there coming from one side to the other. It's just an ugly situation. It's a completely unfair decree. And that's essentially what Mordecai is feeling here. That he cannot bow down to someone who has mistreated his people for so long in the past. And so we see Mordecai, he's refusing to bow down. And Haman, I mean also pride, prejudice going on here, boiling over. He lashes out. It says that he is enraged. Verse 6 says, Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all the Jewish people. I mean, talk about blowing it out of proportion. I mean, he has an issue with one person, so then he decides, let's destroy them all. But I think this is a sign of pride. The pride is evident when you take one isolated incident and then the response is blown completely out of proportion to what the offense was. That is what is happening um, here in this passage. And, and, you, and the prejudice obviously plays in there as well. Um, but there is pride, there is prejudice, and it becomes very dangerous where, where Haman is ready now not just to pay back Mordecai. I mean, certainly not to overlook the offense, uh, but not just to pay back Mordecai. He, he feels like he needs to now destroy all the Jewish people. Let's move on to see what is going to happen next. Because this is a key to everything in the book of Esther. Picking up in verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples, in all the provinces of your kingdom who keeps themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then, on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province, and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province, and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So we, here we see this plan to destroy the Jews. They first of all cast lots. It's a way of divination. It's a way of kind of seeking these pagan, pagan gods, trying to determine, okay, when should we carry out this execution order? So they cast lots. 
to figure it out. And next, after they figure out the day, uh, it's 11 months down the line when, when all the Jews will be destroyed, then Haman sets about to persuade the king to follow through on this. And he does it in kind of a sneaky sort of way where, I mean, it's the way that the slander and gossip usually starts where you take one incident or one person and then you generalize it to apply to all kinds of things. And that's exactly what Haman is doing. He doesn't ever mention the Jews by name. But what he does is he looks at Mordecai and says, okay, Mordecai, uh, you are disobeying uh, the king's command. And then he generalizes that out to, you know what, all the Jewish people disobey the king's commands. Therefore, we need to destroy them all. This is in the king's best interest. And it's not too hard here to to persuade the king. Xerxes just kind of lays down. He doesn't really um, investigate things. He doesn't ask any questions. He just says, here, Use the ring that contains the power of the empire. It's a signet ring, which is a ring that the king would wear. And that ring was used to, to seal royal decrees. And so essentially, King Xerxes is just saying to Haman, Haman, go for it. Do whatever you'd like. No questions asked. So Haman is setting in process, or in motion, the process of seeking to kill every single one of the Jews in the entire empire. And it says that the city is in turmoil. The city is in turmoil. It says the the city of Susa, they were were bewildered. They were like, what is going on here? Because the Persian Empire was renowned for being relatively tolerant of various ethnicities. That's why many of the Jews stayed in the Persian Empire, because they were tolerated there. And you think, though, about how, how you would feel, even if you weren't the one with the death sentence on your head. How would it feel living in an empire where they have the power, anyone's personal whims, to destroy anyone they want? I think that would be a pretty scary place to live. I think of a, as I was working on this message, I I thought of a, um, just a quote from a book. It's about church leadership, ironically. Uh, but, But the principles apply very well when you mix pride with power. And the destructive nature of that. Let me just read this. And I think as I read it and explain it, you'll see how it fits in. It comes from a pastor named Larry Osborne. He says, Be especially leery of those who are angry and argumentative for all the right things, particularly the single-issue crusader. I call these people pit bulls for Jesus. You know the type. They're passionate and angry against sin and sinners. To most Christians, they look like on-fire spiritual heroes. But they're not. The Apostle Paul didn't make a mistake when he warned against putting quarrelsome people into leadership. And he didn't distinguish between those who are quarrelsome for the right things and those who fight over the wrong things. He simply said to keep contentious people out of leadership. And here's why. Pit bulls bite. It's what they do. If you allow one on your board or ministry staff, don't be shocked when at some point of disagreement they turn around and bite you and bite hard. It's what pit bulls do. Now you apply this back here to the Persian Empire. The people there in the empire are looking and they're seeing this edict cast out that there's going to be a genocide to wipe out all the Jews. But the people living in the Persian Empire know enough to know that if this edict can be passed to destroy one type of people, another edict can easily be passed that will destroy anyone else. I mean, King Xerxes has not shown himself to be reliable with power. 
He doesn't use it in a trustworthy way. If you remember from a few weeks ago, I shared a story about how there was this bridge that he commissioned to be built when he is invading Greece, a bridge for the army to use. There was a massive storm that delayed the construction of this bridge. Now, what did King Xerxes do in response? Rather than give them grace and say, okay, just finish it as quickly as you can. Instead, because the storm delayed the construction, he beheaded every single person working on that bridge. Did they deserve it? Was it fair? No. But that's what happens when you have unrestrained, unaccountable power. And when you mix it with pride and prejudice, it's a very dangerous sort of recipe. And that's exactly what the people would have been feeling there in this time. Now, I want to talk for a few minutes in closing about implications of this passage for us. And you may be wondering, again, how do we apply this thing? What, what do we do with this? Well, one of the implications this is, is the reality that God's people are targeted. God's people down through history, whether Jews or now Christians, have a target on their back. We have a spiritual enemy, Satan, who wants to destroy God's people. And that's one of the reasons down through history... Over and over and over, you see the Jews attacked over and over and over in various ways. And then after the Christian church gets established in, in the first century, 2,000 years ago, the Christian church is attacked over and over and over because there is a spiritual enemy targeting God's people. I mean, in this idea of even one day or one night in which people are going to be destroyed, this is not just an ancient type of thing. I think of what is called a crystal knocked back in the 1930s. It's one night called the Night of Broken Glass in Nazi Germany. It was the night of November 9th through 10th, 1938. It was what really kicked off the, the Nazi persecution of Jews. On Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass, the Nazis went crazy on a rampage against the Jews. There weren't that many killed that night. Records show only maybe a hundred, couple hundred killed that night. But 30,000 Jews on one night were imprisoned and taken to concentration camps. 30,000 Jews one night. In addition, 1,000 Jewish synagogues were burned. And over 7,000 Jewish businesses were either destroyed or damaged. And you look at this. This is the power of, of what can happen with this combination of pride, prejudice, and power when it is used in an unhealthy way. It's a very dangerous circumstance. We look at our world around us. I mean, there are genocides that still take place. I think of the Rwandan genocide back in the 90s. There are genocides that still take place. A, a deadly combination of pride, um, of prejudice, and power. The world has many things that are concerning. I even think of um, what took, what's taking place in Britain right now with the vote to leave the European Union this last week and the, the turmoil this is causing politically and economically around the world. And we look at our own political situation here in America and you look at terrorism, you look at mass shootings, you look at uh, the degradation of morals in our society, you look at so many things that cause us concern. And, I mean, we just get anxious. We get worried. We think, you know what? The world's not fair. What's going to happen? But thankfully, we can remember that God is still in control. He is still in control of everything that is taking place. And that is something that is very evident throughout the book of Esther. I mean, you look at Esther chapter 3. Who's in control there? I mean, Mordecai and Esther, I mean, they're trying to do things, but they're not really in control that much. King Xerxes... He's just passed off control to someone else. 
He's not really in control of what's going on, even though he, he should be as king, but he's just passing it off. Haman, I mean, it looks, humanly speaking, like Haman's the one in control. And in our world, it can look like so many other forces are in control because we don't really have control over them, but we can rest assured knowing that God, despite what's going on in the world around us, despite what's going on in Esther chapter 3, God is still in control. God is always the hero of the stories throughout Scripture in our lives. My son, Micaiah, he's in the superheroes now. He loves superhero books, loves the Avengers, stuff like that. I know next to nothing about superheroes. Pretty much all I know comes from the books that I read to Micaiah. But in superhero stories, you always have a really bad situation in the world, and you have a superhero who comes in and saves the day. Now, in the Bible, we talk about heroes. You may talk about Esther being a hero. You may talk about Moses or King David or the Apostle Paul being heroes. And in that sense, they can be heroes, but all of them are very flawed heroes. But there is one superhero that rises above all the rest, and that superhero is God. All the stories in Scripture are not so much meant to exalt the people involved, like Esther and Mordecai and and David and, and, and Moses and people like that. Those are at best conduits for how God's working in the world. God is the superhero who delivers his people. And that is what is very clear in Esther chapter 3. Now, the way that God delivers is sometimes different. Um, I mean, the, the Jews in Germany during World War II certainly would have liked it if God intervened in this Esther sort of way. He chooses to work in different ways, and it's sometimes hard in this world, but we can still rest assured that God is in control. He's even in control, like, like I said, in Esther 3. Even the role of these dice... These lots to determine when this execution is going to be carried out. God even controls that. I mean, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There's 11 months between when the lot was cast and when the, the extermination is scheduled to begin. That set in, in motion the process of exterminating the Jews, but God has already been working long before that with the process of stopping that. It's plenty of time for God to work. And even, even Mordecai, he should have been honored at the end of chapter 2. He was forgotten. You think, he, he's probably thinking, you know what, God, it's not fair. Why didn't they recognize me? But even the fact that Mordecai was not honored in that, at that moment will come up again later in the story of Esther to be crucial in saving the Jews. If Mordecai had been honored when he should have been, the Jews wouldn't have been able to have been saved in the same way. But God was working all things together to accomplish his purposes here. And that can give us confidence as we're going through the, the challenges of our lives. I think it's really helpful when we look at our lives. Um, and, and we're thinking about what's God doing, what's, where's God's faithfulness here, to look at our lives kind of as a car. We're going through life. What we normally do is we're looking out the windshield of the car, which in driver's training, anything you do, look out the windshield when you're driving. Just do that. Um, but when you're trying to see God's faithfulness and see what God's doing in our midst, looking out the windshield at our immediate surrounding circumstances generally is not the best way to discern exactly why God's doing what he's doing. The best, thing, best way to understand what God is doing and to see God's faithfulness is to look in the rearview mirror. Because typically it's only by looking back that we can see, you know what? Even though those things were hard, God was faithful. There's never been a time in Scripture when God's been unfaithful. There's never been a time in our lives that God's been unfaithful. There never will be a time when God's unfaithful. And that is something that we can rest assured in, regardless of what is going on in our lives 
or in the world around us. God is faithful, so we need to always look back and remember, you know what? God, you have been faithful in the past, and so I can trust you here in the present and in the future. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God. <laughs> it gives us hope because we live in a world that is, is full of uncertainty and anxieties. Lord, we, we just look at what's taking place in Europe right now and how that's affecting everything else globally. We look at what's taking place with our current political situation and the presidential process and just wondering how will the next president use power in, in how they govern this country. Lord, it, it's kind of concerning as we look at these things. It's concerning as we look at what's going on in society. But we're thankful, Lord, that you are a faithful God and that our citizenship does not ultimately lie with the United States of America or um, anything like that. Our ultimate citizenship through faith in Christ is in heaven. And Lord, we're thankful that you are already victorious over sin and evil and death. And I pray that you will help us to trust you more and more all the days of our life, through all the ups and the downs, because you are faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.